This is People Who Play, a show about the art of playful living. I'm Emma Warrillow, researcher, writer and part-time mermaid. And I'm Ben Martin, content creator and nostalgia junkie. Every episode we discuss family life, playtime and we interview a guest who has found a way to play at life. From creatives to educators to comedians, our aim is to inspire more grown-ups to grow down and unleash their unique play powers. If you'd like to join our play crew and find more inspiration and info on play, follow at playful underscore den on Instagram. And for all your retro feels, find me on Instagram at benflyingretro. I'm on there too, at Emma Warrillow, E-M-M-A, W-O-R-R-O-L-L-O, really. This podcast drops bi-weekly on Mondays, but if that's not enough to get your playful vibes vibing, you can also join my Patreon for £5 a month and you'll get a personal pod from me, which drops alternate Mondays. Plus, you can now watch the video interviews of our guests directly in there too. We really do appreciate all your likes, subscribes, follows and shares. These digital high fives really mean a lot to us and help us to grow the show. Okay, let's get on with the episode. It's playtime. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode. I have a brilliant guest for you today. And this was a real treat for me to sit down and have this conversation because... Even as a dedicated student and researcher of play myself, I still find myself trying to grapple with how to just really let go of some of the expectations, particularly on our children, around education and performing and to just truly believe in the power of play and the instinctive naturalness of the importance of doing that and Dr Peter Gray is a great person to speak to about that. He is a research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College and has a specific expertise in evolutionary psychology. So he has studied and written about play, particularly in childhood, from an evolutionary perspective. So you will hear him talking a lot about looking from mammals through to humans um, and how how we use play and what it's for. His most recent research has looked at exactly that, play in human evolution, and particularly how children educate themselves through play and exploration when they are free to do so. And you can read about this in his book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant and Better Students for Life. This is a great conversation. Dr. Gray is such a warm and knowledgeable person to talk to. And I think that you will be really inspired and perhaps regalvanized after this conversation to put your trust in the power of play and to just step off that sort of fast road of productivity and all of these kind of markers of success that we are pushed towards and invest in the magic and brilliance of play. I really hope that you enjoy the conversation 
I really did. Um, and yeah, I would love to know on socials um, what you thought of this conversation. Come back and tell me because I want to hear your thoughts. Here's the interview. Dr. Gray, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you as a guest here on People Who Play. I'm very happy to be here. And just for for the listeners who perhaps are not familiar with your work, as I am, I'm a little bit of a a fangirl of um, Dr. Gray's work. I have to say, this is so exciting for me to have this conversation. Would you be able to just introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background and how you have become a a sort of professor of play, an academic um, in play? How did that journey happen? Sure. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm a professor and the uh, actually a research professor uh, retired from teaching. I continued to research at Boston College in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. Uh, I've been there my whole uh, adult life after getting my PhD. So I've been at Boston College all this time. Uh, I wasn't always, as an academician, interested in play. I started off um, with an interest in, uh, I was really more of a, of a neuroscientist to begin with, I was an interest in, in how certain hormones bind in the brains of um, mammals, <laughs> studying rats and mice in the laboratory and how they influence motivated behavior. But relatively early in my uh, career as a faculty, college, uh, my son began to rebel in school (laughs) and uh, rebel in such a way that by the age of nine years old, it was very clear uh, that uh, school was not going to work for him or he was not going to work for school, both of those being true. And um, so we found this very, very alternative school that uh, called the Sudbury Valley School, uh, which is a place where basically children play in an age-mixed environment, in an environment that's in some sense what I have come to be called an educationally rich environment for self-directed learning. And uh, he loved it there. And um, I got... uh, curious uh, for um, two basic reasons uh, about uh, what the long-term consequence would be of of a person going to that school. Should he go through all the way through his high school years uh, at this very alternative school? So I ended up doing a study of the graduates of that school, partly to assure myself or to decide if this was a disaster that I agreed for him to go there in the long run, Uh, partly because I really was very intellectually curious. I was Mm. open to this form of education, but I wasn't... um, I, 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 you know, as a scientist, I want evidence that it works in the long run. It clearly is working in the short run and that he was happy, mind clearly active. I had my kid back again, you know, it was kind of lost in the school where I felt the school was destroying his spirit and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he certainly felt that. And so, um, and so what that study showed to me, and this was many years ago, uh, was, that he, was that the graduates of the school are doing very well in life, despite the fact that they're growing up not doing what we think of as so essential for children to do, which is to do this imposed curriculum, uh, mm-hmm. take all these tasks, take all these courses in a linear fashion, one after the other, 
and uh, go on. I, well, the graduates, those who wanted to go on to higher education did, even if they'd never taken a course before, you know, mm -hmm. and they did fine. They were happy in their lives. They were happy with their, their careers and so on. So, of course, that led me to think, well, they're clearly, by any reasonable definition of education, they are becoming educated. I, I define education as whatever it is that you learn that enables you to live a uh, happy and meaningful and productive life. And these people were living that kind of life. So by that definition of education, I can't think of any better definition of education than that. By that definition of education, they're doing just fine. And they were educated when they left the school. So then the question became, how do they become educated? I mean, you look at them and you're, if you're a typical person looking at them, you're just you, you scratch your head and say, well, they're just playing, <laughs> you know, they're not learning, they're just playing, <laughs> you know, they're just, they're just uh, doing what they want to do, which for kids largely, especially young kids is play and older kids is play too, but in a somewhat different way. So, um, so that's what got me interested in play, you know, and I began to, I had a graduate student uh, who did his doctoral dissertation on this, and I, we, we spent a lot of time making observations at the school. What really happens when kids are playing? What's really happening if you look at what's play, what play is? So that's, um, that's how, you asked how I got interested in play. That's how I got interested in play as an academician. I could also say regarding background that if I go farther back in my background, there are certain things in my background that I think prepared me to become interested in play in addition to this, uh, what I've just described now. First of all, I'm old enough that I grew up at a time when kids played. <laughs> yeah. Kids played, you know. Uh, I was a kid in the 1950s and in the 1950s, every mom uh, sent their kids outdoors all the time. Get out of the house. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's uh, this is in northern Minnesota. It's it's not below zero Fahrenheit. It's <laughs> get out of the house. <laughs> it's uh, in the summer. Oh, it's raining a little bit, but still, that you're not going to melt. Get out of the house, right? So you're out of the house. All the other kids are out of the house, and there's always kids out there. There's no adults around, and so what do you do? You play. You play in all sorts of ways, and this is the way that I'm prepared to say today, based on my research and into, into, um, into hunter-gatherer cultures and various other cultures, this is the way children are meant to grow up, mm -hmm. playing most of the time, <laughs> at least available to play most of the time, with other kids away from adults. Uh, this is, the, this is uh, when I look at my own background, Clearly, I learned more that's more important to my life in that than I learned in school. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's true for most people who look honestly at their background. What do you really know that you remember that's, that's, changed your, that's affected your life, that's given you the kind of real world knowledge that you need to do well in this world, that's given you the social skills to do well, that's taught you how to deal emotionally with the bumps in the road of life without calling on some authority figure to solve your problems for you all the time. These are the things that children learn in play and, and children are designed to play away from adults with other kids because 
mother nature, if you will, or natural selection, or God, if you will, uh, understood that this is how, what children need to do to, do to ultimately become independent. That's the purpose of childhood. So I grew up with all of that. And then when I was a teenager, I worked at camps uh, as a waterfront director from the age of 16 on. And then my first couple of years in college, I did. And, and um, I also, while I was in college, I, um, because I had a background in sports, uh, as high school sports, I was able to get jobs in New York City where I went to college uh, working with kids uh, in recreation centers and, um, and, and basically watching them play. I mean, I didn't tell them what to do. I was just there, <laughs> you know, so, and so, uh, and so I grew up with a lot of play myself as a kid and a lot of opportunity as a young adult to um, observe what kids do when they're playing. And, I, and although I never thought of that as my reason for going into academia, I think those two things ultimately came together. Wow. So much of that is so relevant to me personally as well. Um, I grew up in the 90s um, and actually also had a, most of my play was independent and outside. Quite different to, I have three children, they're two, nine and 12, um, and really different to how the culture of childhood is now. Um, and I also... Um, used to work in kids activity camps and then my career my background is in children's research um market research um specifically and spent all my time essentially talking to kids about um what they play and what they're engaged in um, and I think you know I am now sort of early into my journey of my study um of play and particularly interested in sort of today's generation um impact of screen time etc cetera, etc cetera. um so yeah, it's really interesting. And I didn't realize that your initial spark um, came from a personal story from your son. And I have one of your quotes in front of me actually. And I wonder um, if this is related to, to your son. Um, I love this quote and I'd love you to speak more to what's behind it. It is that I think often the problem child is the brilliant child. Could you speak a little bit to what what you mean by that because I think there are so many parents um in as you describe whose kids are just you know round peg square hole um and are really sort of struggling in this system and are being sort of labeled as this this problem child when you know it's often the environment around them is not kind of allowing them to be so I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about that quote yeah I think a lot of uh, what we call problem children uh, become identified as problem children when they're in school. Uh, yeah. That was certainly true for my son. I would never have called him a problem child when he was home, never thought of it that way. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who get diagnosed in this country, I don't know if it's true in the UK, a huge number, maybe 20% of boys get a diagnosis of ADHD yeah. at some point in their in their school career. Um, people get other kinds of diagnoses in school. So basically, uh, a large number of the people who get called problem child, probably the great majority of them, um, it's school that causes them to be identified as problem children. But what is it that school wants of people? School, the, the primary lesson in school, 
no matter what people think the lessons are, the primary lesson is obedience, right? If you don't do what you're told to do, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Either it, whether you don't do what you're told to do because you're a bit rebellious and you refuse to do what you're told to do, you get tired of being bossed around, or because you can't do it. You just can't do it. You're not, you're not cut out to do those things at that time in your development. So if you don't obey, you fail. Yeah. <laughs> you can, I've often said that the only way to fail in school is to not do what you're told to do. The only way to pass is to do what you're told to do. The lessons are not difficult, <laughs> you know. It may be difficult to get the highest grades, but to pass, it's not difficult. Anybody can do it. You just have to do it, right? But you have to be willing to do it. So that means that to do well in school, you have to be the kind of person who's willing to compromise your own willfulness. Mm. You're willing to set aside your own desires, your own needs, your own understanding of yourself in order to comply with what you're told to do. It's not surprising to me that some of the most uh, that some of the people who have the greatest spark up here <laughs> are unwilling to do that. <laughs> They're unwilling to do that. I think that was definitely true of my son. You know, he just, he tried to make school interesting by doing everything in a different way. He would do mm -hmm. the assignment, he'd do it a different way, but because he did it in a different way, the teacher counted it wrong. Even if he was getting the right answers on, say, in mathematics, he'd, he'd get it right, but but he invented his own way to do it and that made it wrong in the teacher's point of view so if you if you try to be creative if you try to bring some of yourself into this you're going to be in trouble in in our typical schools that's simply a fact yeah. i don't care what teachers believe they're doing when they go into education i think most of them have very ideal ideas and most of them really love kids and they want to do the right thing with kids. But the fact of the matter is the way our schools are organized, what you are teaching is obedience and that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. My son did exactly the same thing with maths. Um, you know, got to the the answers in a different way or didn't quite show the right working out. And yeah, he he's so frustrated. And just listening to you speak, it's funny because you know, our sort of family values and the way that we raise our kids are very much about, you know, expressing themselves and having a right. point of view and kind of, you know, really sort of bringing themselves to everything and not being a kind of zombie and just sort of, and, and yeah, yeah, that must be actually really almost harder for them to then go into school, especially my son who just, his brain is just really different to the school system. But on top of that, he's been parented in this way to sort of really kind of unleash himself and bring himself to, to everything that he does. Um, and that sort of isn't allowed. I will always remember so clearly, um, it was really young. I mean, he was only in year two, so he would have been sort of six and I was at a parent's evening and it was really sort of quote unquote behind whatever that means in handwriting. I think it was. And right. I was like, you know, could you tell me anything else about his creativity? And uh, she sort of said, Oh, well, he's, you know, he's most creative child in the class. He's comes up with all these stories and his imagination and he has no problem coming up with ideas for stories. And then she said, 
but what's the point if you can't write it all down? <laughs> and I was just like, my heart was just like, and, and I think right. the, the thing with teachers and I have so much respect and empathy for teachers because they're, they're shackled by the system. And I think, as you say, most of them have really good intentions um, and they're not able to serve the child because of the curriculum that's in front of them. But yeah, I, my heart just, you know, sank and broke when I heard that. And I just thought, what right. is going on with our, the sort of culture of childhood right. that we right. squash that and don't, celebrate that it's so frustrating i mean the basic setup of the school system is the problem it it, it the premise is that all children are going to learn the same things at the same time in the same way yeah uh you can't run a classroom the way we we do it today without that assumption I mean, that's that's a given yeah <laughs> and um the fact of the matter is all children are not ready to learn the same things at the same time in the same way. Some children, you know, I studied children, I've, I do a lot of research now of children who are involved with what I've labeled as self-directed education in schools like this school that my son went to, uh, doing homeschooling without a curriculum and so on and so forth. And what we find is that um, that children, everybody learns how to read, but they learn how to read at very different ages when they, whenever they get interested in reading. I don't think it has to do with brain development. I think it has to do with interest. And so some kids get interested in reading then by the time they're three or four years old. Some kids don't get interested in reading until they're young teenagers. So the typical kid in, in self-directed education learns to read at around six or seven or eight, but many of them learn much later. And it's no problem at all. They, they, they learn, you know, your son would have uh, developed his creative mind and he would have learned how to write when he was ready to write and learned how to, you know, so this is, uh, I've often said that the time to learn something is when you are either so curious about it that you can't stop yourself from learning it or when you need to know it. Mm -hmm. And um, kids learn it when they need to know it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. For what they want to do, for, this, for what when they themselves have decided that they need to know it. Yeah, this kind of obsession with early, early sort of learning and early achievement is, it has got so out of hand. I mean, children here in the UK are, some of them are being taught to sort of write letters and things in nursery, which is like three, four. And I know from when my kids were at um, nursery in London, when we used, they used to ask for parent feedback. And I love this nursery because it was, they loved role play and they were very into kind of like sensory play. And so much of the feedback from the parents was they don't really seem to be doing much. <laughs> Yeah. And it was like, you know, this is all, it all looks really nice that they're doing shows and, you know, they've got costumes, but like, you know, are you going to do more like prepping them for school? And it's this kind of like this preparation, like we're preparing kids earlier and earlier. And it's like, why is it not just okay to do the thing <laughs> when you're there and you're ready? Like it's, it's just gone down and down and down and down. And, and now, yeah, it's, it's just really got out of hand. And, and it's, it's gone down despite the fact that every long-term study that's been done of early academic training in preschool and even in kindergarten, every long-term study that's been done shows that 
it either to it totally washes out any any benefit of that totally washes out by third grade and yeah. most of the well controlled studies show it reverses itself by third grade so that those kids who are just playing in their early years are now doing better in every way so socially emotionally and academically in terms of school grades so mm. most of the studies only look in the short term so you teach kids to write their letters in 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 preschool and in kindergarten you teach them a little bit of pre-reading skills and so on and so forth and, and no surprise at the beginning of first grade and even by the end of first grade they're a little better than the kids who didn't do that not much better by the end of the first grade it's most often washed out but what you have done is you have you have um partially destroyed the child's intellectual interest in these kinds of things mm -hmm. you by the child is doing these things because the child is 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 trying to trying to be a good child to do what they're being told to do mm -hmm. but they're not happy about it and so they're going through the motions of doing these things and at some level they're learning them but they're not interested in them they're not incorporating them deeply they don't necessarily understand what they're doing <laughs> They don't feel in personally involved in what they're doing. And so I think that you're already starting to burn them out. <laughs> yeah. And and that burnout only once they start off that way and they're taking that approach by the third by third grade or so, that burnout is showing up in worse scores. There was a, a study done, a very the most well controlled study of um preschool academic training uh, was done beginning a few years ago in the state of Tennessee here in the United States. They had a program, a very well-funded program, a lot of money went into it, um, with certified teachers, uh, master's degree teachers uh, teaching preschool. And it was only for kids who were below, in families below a certain poverty level. So it was only available for people. The idea was this would give these kids a, a boost so that they would be doing better. And this was clearly an academically based program. But because there were more families that wanted to get into it, they were able to do an experiment where they randomly chose some families to be in it and other families not the first year. And then they followed these kids up for all the way through sixth grade. By sixth grade, and, and beginning by third grade, but it was even bigger by sixth, by sixth grade, the kids who had just been home, and these are in poverty families, which, you know, according to the usual assumption, this is not a great educational place in terms of typical educational academic learning. Those kids were outperforming the kids who had been in this program on every single measure. Mm -hmm. And to me, most significantly, they were the kids who are in this program were 50% more likely to have had a learning disorder diagnosis by the time they were in sixth grade than those who had not been in the program. So I think what's happening is we are producing learning disorders, yeah. <laughs> forcing these little kids to do this stuff that they don't want to do. They're not ready to do. They're, we're, we're giving them a bad attitude about school <laughs> because we're making even beginning before they ever start real school, supposedly start real school, although now 
preschool is real school by many people's view. The um, they're you know we're we're making them unhappy. We're putting them. We're putting. We're creating the kinds of pressure that leads to learning blocks. Mm. And um, I think the high rate of um, the high rate of supposed dyslexia and other kinds of learning disorders in our country is largely because we're forcing kids to learn things when they're not interested and ready for it and they're developing blocks and fears and shame about it and that is that's where the problem lies yeah i'm curious what are your thoughts on because you had experience of an alternative school and i think there is this tension between when parents recognize you know my child is really struggling in this system um but perhaps education for a lot of people is still the only golden ticket to kind of elevate themselves through um, society. And there is a real fear amongst parents. And I would say particularly today's generation of parents, there's so many uncertainties ahead of us. Like we're raising kids where we don't know what the state of the planet is going to be like when they're adults. We don't even know what jobs are going to be available. We they're not even invented yet. Um, we, you know, have just had this pandemic. Um, you know, there's all of these uncertainties. And I think that kind of creates um what I describe as this kind of covering all bases mentality. And it's almost like I need to get my kid you know, these grades, these extracurricular skills, these languages, they've got to compete with this, this, and this, and this, because I don't really know how to prepare them. And I wondered, yeah, if you had any thoughts on, I guess the sort of, it's the tension between what is natural and instinctive and, and right for the child to do, but in the context of this culture where they need to come out the other side and be able to mobilize right. through society. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's a great um, diagnosis of uh, why it is parents are so concerned and so pressuring their kids and why schools are moving in this direction. Everybody believes that your kid is going to be homeless or some kind of failure yeah. if they don't do well in school, if they don't get into higher education and, and some social classes not only get into higher education, but some elite school, <laughs> some elite college, yeah. you know, this is so the pressure becomes great. But I want to step back to what you said is the cause of this anxiety. The fact that um, the future is unpredictable, <laughs> more so than in the past. So, you know, when when my parents were kids and they went, they were growing up, they could kind of expect, well, I prepare for a job and I'll have that job the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. You know, my own stepfather was a union man, you know, he, uh, the union protected him, the, uh, <laughs> you know, he, um, uh, and although even he, he was a printer and that job by the before he was really ready to retire, that job became obsolete. So even then, technology was making certain jobs obsolete. But the uh, but what is it that children need for today's world? What are the skills they need for today's world? Let me tell you what they don't need. They don't need to be able to memorize a lot of information because it's right here. You know, it's yeah. right there. All they have to do is ask me what the capital of uh, of Ghana is and the click and I'll tell you, right? <laughs> you know, 
tell you where some country is is i'll i can make a couple of clicks and i'll tell you every kid knows this every kid can do this you don't need to know how to do math in your head nobody does math in their head anymore right <laughs> you don't need to yes. <laughs> you know you don't you don't need to be able to do routine calculations we've got so the things that we used to believe are important to learn and so we're taught in school are obsolete now you don't yeah. need to do those things what do you need to do what is it that the work world is looking for they're looking for people who are creative yes this thing is not creative <laughs> you have to you have to be creative to know how to use this in order to solve the problems that you want they're looking for people who can at, who can ask and find answers to questions for which the answer is not known. <laughs> There's no point in learning and memorizing the answers to questions that are known because you can just look those up, right? Mm. So we're looking for people who have, who are creative, who can think out of the box, who can invent things, who can solve new problems that arise and looking for people who have social skills. I can't overemphasize that mm. social skills are really extraordinarily important. We need in this world, as we always have, but even more so today, to know how to get along with other people. Every workplace is connected. You're always connected with other people. You need to know how to get along with other people. You need many jobs have to do with getting along with other people. We need people with moral values. We need people who who uh, who want to leave this planet better than they found yeah. it, instead of worse, and so on and so forth. That, what's that's what we need. Schools are simply not preparing people for that. In fact, they are having the opposite effect. So I've said that you know the how important creativity is today. Now there's there's actually believe it or not there is a valid way of assessing creativity and that's the uh torrance's uh tests of creative thinking hmm. which have been given to school-aged children in the united states at all grade levels for many decades now and the way it, reason i say it's a valid test is because it predicts better than any other measure who is going to be creative in adulthood? Who's going to invent new products, start new businesses, write no novels that are successful, all the kinds of creative contributions to our society. This test predicts that, who's going to do that better than anything, better than IQ, better than, than way better than grades in school, which are not a predictor at all. Uh, better than teachers' guesses as to who's going to do well. Now, here's the sad finding. Ever since the middle of the, of the 1980s, uh, 1984 seemed to be the turning point, scores on those tests have been going down. And they've been going down at such a rapid rate that, and, and the most recent data that I'm aware of was 2010. By 2010, 85% of school-aged children were doing worse on that test than the average child was in 1984. Wow. Now, to me, this, is, this decline in creative thinking is no surprise because it coincides with the time, the, over the same period of time is when we started having children spend more time in school. We started taking away recess 
we started taking away the more creative things that used to be in school, yeah. all for the sake of these standardized tasks yeah. that, at least in the United States, become the end-all and be-all yeah, of school. Here. Teachers are evaluated not on how happy the kids are, not on how creative the kids are, but on how they perform on these tasks which are the least creative things you can possibly do, you know? Any task that is a bunch of one right answer, multiple choice questions, that's the least creative thing possible. So, so no surprise. And also, what is the most creative thing that people do? It's play. Play by definition is creative. It's always creative. It's children's way of being creative. And we have more or less taken real play away from children. So you put children in this kind of uh, in this kind of environment where it's all about obedience and doing what you're told to do and getting the one right answer that the teacher regards as the right answer and you take away play which is by definition creative and you take away recess where where at least some play used to occur and you're going to get a decline in creativity and oddly at a time in history where creativity is more important in the workplace than it's ever been before at least within within uh, the last hundred years or so yeah i am genuinely concerned about the creativity gap because there are some real real um sort of existential crises that need solving across science across sort of social um justice and we do need very different solutions, very different systems. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot that needs looking at in a completely different way. And it is concerning that at a time when we need that more and more, that that creativity is declining and there could be a gap opening up. I'm curious what you think about um, the sort of more contemporary ways that children communicate and connect and express themselves, because I agree I feel like in my research and in speaking to children I have definitely you know observed how a decline in unstructured play or some you might say free play um has led to this like inability to sort of like just be with a blank canvas I guess I would describe it so if you said you know here's some stuff build something um that can now be quite challenging for children on the flip side to that I have also encountered some mind-blowing ways that children are harnessing the power of technology blending the real world with the sort of offline world and expressing themselves in ways that are truly creatively sensational and I wondered what your thoughts were on those that kind of spectrum of it drying out but also kind of exploding in different ways with new opportunities yeah uh, that's a great question um so I'm a uh I think that in some sense the uh, computer play uh and computer interactions is some in some sense the saving grace um we have uh, made it not possible for kids to gather away from adults outdoors and in other places as kids used to do. Um, and, um, and so they have figured out they can gather uh, virtually 
Yeah, it's a uh, neat playground. As you, just as you and I are connecting virtually, we can't. It'd be hard for me to make it over to you or you physically. But so we're being very clever here, and we're <laughs> communicating by the computer. And I'm glad we are, right? I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be communicating. I wish at all. we so, were face to face, though. <laughs> so this, I do too. That would be better. Yeah. That would be better. No question. But this is second best. And that's, I think, what the kids are saying to themselves, whether they say that consciously, that's what they're doing. So there is research, computer play is real play. It doesn't have the same benefits of outdoor exercise, and it doesn't have all the benefits. You can't rough and tumble, and physically you can't, you know, climb trees and experience uh, danger and prove to yourself you can do this. You can't do a lot of the things that you can do outdoors that are very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. But there are other things you can do that are very similar to play. Uh, it's it, these ga The games that the kids are playing are, are endlessly creative. Uh, they're able to, uh, they're, they're social. Many of the, the games that they're playing with other people are social. They're learning social skills. Uh, you're learning a certain amount of emotional skills, the, the emotions that come with your, the intensity of your involvement in it. You experience anger, you experience fear, you experience love, you experience these mm -hmm. things to some degree as you're playing these games, as you immerse yourself in these mm -hmm. games. There's research that shows, you know, despite the common perception that these games are harmful to kids, there's really no systematic research showing that they're yeah. harmful. And there's a lot of systematic research showing the ways in which they're helpful. The study that I think is most interesting, at least from the perspective of the work that I'm involved in, is a, is a large scale study that was um, directed by uh, Columbia University School of Mental Health in conjunction in collaboration with some universities in Europe where uh, they looked at young children between the age of six and 10, if I remember right, might, might have been six and 11, um, 6,000 children. And they assessed by interviewing, the, by, by surveying the parents, how much time each child was spending playing video games. And independently of that, through the teachers, they assess the teachers' judgments of the children's social abilities, emotional stability, and how well they were doing in school. Those kids who were playing more than five hours a week, though that was the dividing line they made for the basic comparison of, vi of video games, were outperforming the other kids on every single measure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to me, no surprise at all, because if you're not playing at least five hours a week of video games, you're probably not playing <laughs> in this society today. You're probably not right. or very little playing. Yeah. And play, we know, promotes all these things. And so to me, what happens is the video play is promoting... Uh, promoting kind of the self-confidence it takes, promoting the good feelings, reducing anxiety, teaching you social skills because most of them are playing socially in these games. Uh, so we shouldn't demonize. A lot of people are demonizing. A lot of people think the reason kids aren't playing outdoors is because the vi the uh, computer is so seductive. I think that may be true in a few cases. I think it was always true even when I was a kid. Yep. There, were, there were kids who as much as almost everybody liked to play outdoors, there were kids who just stayed inside reading all the time. I don't know what was wrong with them. They just wanted to read, right? <laughs> well, 
uh, you know something they turned out to be okay <laughs> yeah know? because they were doing what they wanted to do they got enough socializing they somehow they figured out as young adults i need to get a little exercise and they're and they've done fine in the world they've become professors and librarians and other kinds of intern internal you know kinds of things like that I think the same thing. There are kids who like, who just play computer games and do computer stuff and they don't go outdoors. This has been going on long enough. So a lot of them have grown up and they're doing fine in the world. <laughs> they're finding, they're finding jobs that involve the skills they learn. They're finding that many of the skills they learned are transferable to other mm. jobs. So I don't think, I think we worry unnecessarily about yeah. kids on the computer. I think that the, it gets brought into so many different conversations, the video gaming, it gets brought into sort of violence. It gets brought into obesity. It gets brought into um, anxiety. And um, there are always going to be cases where, yeah, it's going to play a role in those things for sure. But there is also going to be so many more where that is going to be the spark that lights up that kind of that kid's play fire and that's where they go to get it and and I sort of have this expression like take your play pills it's like we've all got different different ones that we need and different activities sort of really really um sort of give us exactly what we're craving from play and for some kids that really is through those video games and you know as you say as long as you're balancing it with sort of other activities and getting out and about in the world then it's not to be um, demonized. I wanted to talk to you a little bit because you mentioned uh, risk-taking in play, which happens really organically in outdoor play when you're in nature. It is just, you don't even have to think about it. It just happens all the time. You're climbing trees, stepping stones, you're jumping over water. Like it's just happening all the time. Um, And there's another quote from you here. You say, um, a little girl who climbs a tree higher than her mum would want her to climb comes down a more courageous person than she was before she climbed. Um, And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about risk-taking in play, um, what that sort of does in in the child's mind and how that helps them develop. Right. So I, my background in biology and evolutionary theory leads me to look at play from an evolutionary perspective. And so you can look at all the things that children learn in play, all the value that play has for physical and psychological development. Uh, but then you look at, well, so, so, okay, so we can understand why, why children play, but why do they play in ways that could injure them, could even kill them, rarely, but so animal behaviorists have asked the same question. It turns out it's not just our young who play in this way, but the young of many other mammals, most other mammals play in risky ways. Um, there are there, there are observations of chimpanzees, young chimpanzees climbing to the top of the tree and then dropping, catching themselves just before they hit the ground. There are mm. monkeys chase one another around in their in their chasing play high enough up that in the trees that if they fell they would get seriously hurt. Why mm. do why don't they do it on lower branches? You know? mm. Why goat kids skip along cliffs? Uh, the, the some of the rough and tumble play that animals engage in is potentially dangerous. So why do animals play? Why do young animals play in these kinds of ways? Why do our children play in these kinds of ways? And the answer to that, that animal behaviorists came up with before psychologists ever did, before people are concerned with children ever did, 
is that this is how animals learn how to deal with danger with i mean all of us at some point regardless of what species we are are going to have serious emergencies in mm. our lives if the first time we face an emergency is a real serious emergency we might just panic. We don't know how to handle it. We feel this fear. We have a trembling. Our heart rate goes up. We don't know how to handle our, we're, we might have a panic attack. And as a consequence of that, we won't be able to save our child or ourselves or, or whatever it is that's in danger at this time of the emergency. So mother nature, if you will, has put endowed our offspring and the offspring of other mammals with this desire to learn how to deal with fear. And how do you learn how to deal with fear? You put yourself in somewhat fearful situations, situations that you know you can handle, but uh, that are a little stretch for you to handle. So mm -hmm. climbing the tree, you, you, climb, you climb to the point where you feel, instead of feeling a bit of fear you begin to feel terror and then you come down you don't go to the point of terror this is the great thing here is you're controlling it you're you're in control of this fear and by and you're putting yourself into just the amount of fear that you can tolerate and you're maybe learning i can tolerate a little bit more i can tell mm -hmm. so you're developing your you're developing your physical capabilities to deal with this situation, but even more so you're de developing your psychological capabilities. You're developing your sense of, I can handle this. Yeah. And then later on, something seriously happens in your life, a serious problem. You feel all these senses of fear, but you felt that before and you know that you this is not going to cause you to lose control. You're going yeah. to be able to be in control. You're going to be able to solve this problem. So from this point of view, it's no surprise that children want to play in these kinds of ways. And to me, it's no surprise that now that we no longer, to a large degree, most families don't allow their children yeah. to play in these kinds of ways, people are becoming paralyzed with fear at much higher levels and with much less of a reason to become paralyzed with fear than they did in the past. That anxiety levels, panic levels, all kinds of these things are um, have skyrocketed over the same period of time that young people have been raised without the opportunity for risky play. Mm. And I think it's important to flag that that sort of level that you're talking about, reaching your level and then almost like visiting that place, dealing with it, coming back, going back, that that exists for everyone, but may look different to different children. Because I think some, obviously all children have different abilities. And some Absolutely. parents will say, well, you know, my kid's just like really uncoordinated and can't go up that that height or can't do that. But right. there will be a version of that for that child. It's just important to, it's not about being the kid that goes the highest or like putting your kids into right. really scary scenarios or everyone's going to be a kind of daredevil adrenaline seeker. It's about what is your own level of risk visiting that place, coming down, as you say, and going back and coping with it. And, and everyone can do that. That's that's a really good point. And, and basically what you're saying is keep it in the realm of play. Play yes. is something that the child decides to do, that the child is not something controlled by an adult. To me, if an adult 
says, okay, it's really important that my child experience risk, so I'm going to require my child to do this, mm -hmm. even though my child, that is, that is counterproductive. That produces fear. That produces terror. I think that, I, I don't know if in the UK this still occurs, but in the US uh, throughout the history of physical education classes, kids are made in a physical education class to climb a rope to the ceiling of the gym. For some kids, this is easy. It's showing off. For mm. other kids, this is terrifying, yeah. absolutely terrifying. And I think it's cruel to do that. I really yeah. think that's cruel. Doing it in front of other people. When you're doing something that's scary and new, you, you want to do it mm. just with your best friends or mm. all by yourself. You don't want to do it. And you, you want to do it gradually. You want to. Mm. So I think that Sometimes, you know, I, I want to make sure that nobody's getting the wrong message here is that your child needs risky, be, risky, uh, be, needs to engage in risky behaviors. So therefore you put your child in risky behaviors. No, allow your child, yeah. allow your child because only your child knows. You don't know. You can't get in your child's head and determine what is going to lead to panic and what is going to not. Mm. Only the child knows that. And the child, that, climbing a tree is a perfect metaphor for this, but it occurs everywhere because the child yes. climbs the tree to the point where I'm beginning to really feel uncomfortable with this to a mm. level that is no longer challenging, is beginning to be terrifying, and now I'm going down. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that. The, it has to be under the control of the child. Yeah. The parent who tries to get the child to dive off the high board, and that <laughs> child is absolutely not ready. To, I, I remember being in that situation. It wasn't my parent. It was an uncle who thought I should be ready to dive off. And I was standing there shaking at the end of the thing. That did not lead me to want to be become a high diver <laughs> no <laughs> quite the opposite i imagine i'm so interested in the whole topic of risky play because i interact with hundreds and hundreds of parents particularly mothers online and have done quite a lot of research with pa parents as well and i think there are such high levels of fear amongst parents. And I think this risk-taking in play is something so many parents really struggle with. And a lot of them actually know that they need to let the kids, you know, do a little bit more, but they find it so difficult to let go. And I think one of my hypotheses is that the, the sort of um, the culture of parenting today is so much about getting things right and is so much about uh, you and your it's your everything's your fault if something goes wrong there isn't for everyone this kind of you know it takes a village to raise a child well a lot of people don't have a village it feels like all eyes are on them um, and if their kid falls off the climbing frame at the play park then they feel that they're going to be judged for that that is a genuine fear that a lot of parents today have same with letting their kids um play independently as well like I've had people message me that say you know I was letting my kid play out and they were kind of you know wandering off and you know people would go up to them and like be like whose kid is this like you know and, and almost like want to report them um so this is this is problematic um in the sort of contemporary culture of parenting and what I observe it is it is is affecting the way that parents encourage or, or sort of support their children to do risk-taking in play. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what is the parent's role in 
allowing their children to take risks and how might that parent that struggles with that um, just facilitate it a little bit more? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in what you've said. Now, I think that I think that the reason children in the past took risks and were able to take risks and were able to develop courage is because parents were not there. I don't think it's because yeah. parents were any, were at least much less likely to try to prevent their kids from engaging in risk if the parent was there. <laughs> but you didn't do these things in front of your parents. <laughs> you did them when your parents weren't there. and. Um, and, and you didn't tell your parents about it for the most part. Uh, you might, but you, it depends on who your parents are. But I think, the, I think the biggest change in children's lives now compared to the past is that children are never away from adults, yep. almost never away from adults. There's always an adult around who sees themselves as a protector of the child. And if you're the protector of the child and you're doing something that looks dangerous to you <laughs> and you think the child could seriously hurt themselves if they fell or if they slipped or if they cut themselves with that knife they're playing with or whatever, you're inclined to stop them. And even if you don't stop them, the child is less likely to do it in front of you because the mm -hmm. child is, feels like you're going to stop them or you're going to feel or you're going to judge that they're misbehaving. So the key, if we want our children to develop in a healthy way, we've got to get them, we've got to allow them out of our sight. And we've got to allow them out of the sight of other people who are going to take a, that kind of a caretaking role. Now, in this world today, very few parents are maybe no parents are going to just send their kids out the way parents did in the 1950s when I was a kid. So what we, the solution is to provide play settings and play areas where the parent feels that it's safe enough because there is an adult there, but that adult is trained not to intervene unless there's a real emergency. So mm -hmm. this occurs in adventure playgrounds. I don't know if mm -hmm. you have adventure playgrounds mm -hmm. in your area, but these are playgrounds that sometimes they're called junk playgrounds. There's places where there's all kinds of opportunity for risky play. You, you, there are, there's there's tools, dangerous tools you can mm -hmm. use. There's trees to climb. There's there's structures you can build. There's in uh, some of them, you're, there's uh, matches and you can build fires. You can do all of these kinds of things. But there is a play worker there who is trained to know the difference between a risk and something that is truly dangerous. And 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 knows how to, if somebody did get hurt, would know what to do with it. So it becomes more possible for parents to leave their kids off and not hang around. It's still difficult in this country to get the parents to go away, but at least <laughs> there's the potential. The other thing that we're doing, that's something that I'm involved with is, is um, the, I'm a, I, I helped to found an organization called Let Grow. It's sort of let your kids go and let them grow. And uh, Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book called Free Range Kids, is the president of this organization. And we've been working together with schools to bring, uh, bring real play and bring a certain degree of risk to children's lives uh, who are going to regular public schools. So 
two things uh, that we've developed and, and many schools are doing it, increasing number of schools are doing it, it's still a minority of schools doing it, but a, a, a growing minority. One is what we call play club. And what play club is, is an hour, usually before school or after school rather than during school hours, because most schools are not willing to sacrifice an hour of academic education for the children's play. So this usually occurs before school or after school. And it's an hour of mixed age play where all the kids in the school are playing together. The, the, the outdoor playground is available, the gymnasium, the hallways, the art room, other rooms in the school with games, There's lots of things to do. There might be 150 kids, depending on the size of the school, all playing together over ages, many things to do. And the teachers who monitor it are trained to not intervene. They're mm -hmm. told, so when I, when I talk to the, I usually talk to the school principals who in turn work with the teachers. When you're watching play club, you're not a teacher. You're not there to tell the children how to play better. You're not there to stop little quarrels. You're not there to cheer up somebody who looks unhappy. The whole point of play is for children to learn how to take responsibility for themselves. And so you are there like a lifeguard on an ocean beach. If you see somebody drowning, if you see something serious yeah. emergency, intervene. But even then, unless, unless it's impossible to try to count to 10 first to see if they don't solve the problem themselves beforehand. This seems to work it, and uh, the teachers really are holding off and it has had amazing effects. Uh, there's been a number of studies that shows that, uh, that the, children, the children begin to like school much better. They're coming to school eagerly. Believe it or not, they're even doing better. This is what the school's like. I don't care about this, but they're doing better on their academic trust because of it. I think because they're refreshed, because they feel more confident, because they feel better about school, because they're doing this. They have more friends. They're less anxious. I'll offer an out, basically an hour a week of free play. That's in some sense just that's a that's a trivial amount of play compared yeah. to what kids really need. But it's like it's like a cup of water in the desert versus no water in the desert, right? Yeah, you know, it's like level. it mm -hmm. makes a difference, and I think it. I think it spreads on so that the kids make friends, and I, I think we haven't really, we haven't really documented this yet. But I think that some of them are making friends, and they're playing more outside of school. There, it's having an effect beyond that period of time. That's one thing we do, and then the other thing we do. So, if there were more of these opportunities, if every school had this every day. Ideally, in my opinion, the whole time between when the school day ends and parents are home from their jobs, if schools were open for free play at school, you would get three or four hours of play every day of real play, mixed age play mm. in, the, in a setting where there's all kinds of ways to play. That would be a very inexpensive way to solve Two problems. It solves the problem of kids having an opportunity to play that's safe enough because there, there's adults watching who know how not to intervene. And it solves that babysitting problem after school before the parents get home. So that's my dream. I, I, this is the first step towards having towards. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I share that dream because um, <laughs> everything is becoming so structured um, and yeah. it's like even even sport it's like you can't just play for right. fun you have to go to like a whole like tournament and you know it's all so serious and and kids they are craving unstructured experiences they are craving 
the ability to right. flex and bend rules. They are craving freedom um, is kind of what they're craving. And, and, our, and so many of the solutions to them, I actually recently took my, I don't know what I was doing, but I took my, I think he was 18 months old and I went to this baby ballet class. And when I was in there, I was like, why are you here? This is like everything that you're not about. And it was just like trying to get these little tiny children to like do all this. I mean, he was just like all over the place. He was just throwing things out the box and because he's <laughs> and it was just I was like, this is bonkers. Like, why isn't yeah. this just a come and play, get messy, right. get muddy? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything's becoming so sort of um structured and I it always frustrates me about school because that is the best thing about school it's like you've got um responsible grown-ups who can um you know look yeah. after them have sort of a kind of paternal maternal um relationship with your kids and you've got this diverse mix of ages and kids coming together <clears throat> and it's like it's all here and we've got space and you know usually hopefully there's some outdoor space right. but we don't take advantage of those things right. that are all in place um and it just always feels like such a miss <laughs> right yeah no absolutely and and you know the a, a lot of parents today think that by putting their kids into uh into youth sports or children's sports that that substitutes for play and of course it does not that's not play we might call it play you're playing a game you're playing a sport so on and so forth that's not play the fundamental character the most important characteristic of play is that it is self-chosen and self-directed this is yet another thing like school these you're, you're you're being told what to do you are being directed the rules are being made for you instead of you making your own rules you're not learning how to be independent you're not learning how to solve your own problems because there's an adult there doing it for you in my mind, uh, youth sports are just more school. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. And the aim is to get you to play the sport well and, the, and to win. And, it's, and therefore, it's also another thing about play is it's done for its own sake. It's not being done for some prize outside of itself. And no matter what the, what the coach says, once you're playing in a league, you know, even if you're seven, eight years old, <laughs> uh it appears that winning becomes important <laughs> and it becomes stressful you mess up and you feel stressed you feel ashamed you feel like i just spoiled our chance to win the trophy it's just like you feel bad if you mess up and get a bad grade in school we're putting kids into anxiety provoking situations anxiety provoking because you're constantly being judged and evaluated by adults and in play, you're not. In play, you're doing things, you're trying things, you're trying to do things well because it's more fun to try to do them well. You're gaining all kinds of skills. But there's nobody judging you except maybe your friends, your other kids. But that's different from if an adult authority figure is judging you, measuring you. Are you the, are you the best outfielder or the worst outfielder? Yeah. Are you going to make the traveling team or not make the traveling team? Yeah. It's no different than are you going to make the honors course in school or mm. not, you know? And, yeah. And I uh, think we, what's, what's interesting <laughs> about sport is that it's not – it's not that no one should do it because there are clearly benefits to being on a team and physical activity. Right. But what I think is frustrating is that being on a team, winning trophies, blah, 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 is celebrated so much more than the kid just in their bedroom making a junk model. <laughs> and that's exactly. what I, that's what I think has happened with parents. It's like free right. play 
doesn't have any kind of certificates. Um, there's no sort of tangible markers. And we have become, particularly in the West, a society that wants everything quantified. What's the points? What's the score? What team are they on? How many nets have they got? Right. We want all these quite sort of markers of success. And I think that is the, the, the big misunderstood thing about play is that you don't really get to see the magic. <laughs> it's just, you know, you a kid can be sitting there with some clay, making up a story in their head, making their thing. And there is just insane stuff happening there, like such cool stuff. Right. But it's not obvious. It's not quantifiable. And you might not even see the gains of it until, you know, years down the line, if you, you know, if you let them carry on and be curious. And I think that is because when you talk about the alternative schools, and I think when we talk about, you know, the power of players we've been talking about, I still think there's that kind of like, <gasps> Is it is it doing anything good though? Like even though we have all this science, there is still a doubt, and I think that has to come from the fact that we've become such a kind of data driven and productivity driven um, and success obsessed culture. Yeah, the, the the way I put this is that we have turned childhood into a period of resume building, and uh, if it doesn't go on, play doesn't go on a resume. <laughs> yep being in a formal sport kind of goes on a resume you yep. know my child is in this my child is in that they even run a trophy my you know and so on and so forth we have uh it's as if we're already trying to, in some sense to prep to prep our children for getting into an elite college when they're two and three years old and we start putting them in some kind of a uniform i mean this is just stupid really from any point of view it's stupid <laughs> to be having it's one thing if kids by a certain age want to engage in uh, formal sports that's fine but to put little tots in uniforms and have them go out for formal training and whatever the game is it's just ridiculous instead of just letting them run they're going to get much more exercise have much more fun learn much more if you just let them run around and be kids so that's uh but that's what we've done we're we are and I think there's so many motives for it. So, you know, you're, you know, you're a mother or a father and, um, and the other mothers and fathers are talking about all these things their children are yep. in and the wards they're winning and so on and so forth. And, and it's a little hard for you to say, well, you know, I, I don't even know what my kid's doing is. He's, he seems to be happy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somehow you don't feel right just saying that. Um, right. You need, I think that it's, I think it's very hard. There's a culture, there's a whole culture that is working against parents who want their children some freedom. And, mm. and part of that culture too is a culture of overprotection. So mm. that in, in I, I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but in the US there are many parents who want to send their kids outdoors but they're afraid if they do, some neighbor will call the police yeah. and say there's a child, their yeah. child looks about eight or nine years old and no adult out there. There are parents who've had who've had the police come because they allowed their child to play on their own front lawn <laughs> uh, without the adult out there. And uh, let alone there are kids who are walking to school. Everybody used to walk to school. By the time they were five years old and starting school, they're walking to school by themselves. That's uh, that's no longer and, true, and you're and not think, allowed to walk to school. <laughs> no, and what's so frustrating in that situation is because I know, and I'm one of them, 
most parents need more help and want more help and want to feel like they have that village. And in that situation where that person calls the police, like if you've got the time to call the police and make a report, like just stop by, knock on the door, be like, Hey, just checking yeah, exactly. in. Just saw your kid right, out that, there. That would be so in. much better. Right? That'd be so much better. <laughs> so, so yeah. much better. Um, we have, we've done an hour. I think we need another hour. <laughs> Um, this um, this has been amazing. I just wondered if we could wrap up with, we didn't get to talk much about play and adulthood. And some of the things that we've talked about here around, um, you know, finding your the, the play activities that light you up. Um, we talked about risk-taking in play and kind of what that does psychologically for sort of coping. And I wondered if you could just sort of close with like, how important is it to keep doing this? So I think the role of play in childhood is obviously very unique because the child is forming and they are doing so much learning and they're kind of figuring out who they are. What happens when we know more about who we are and we go on to become adults? How important is it for us to continue to play and what is the role of play later right. on in life? Yeah, so I, I have written some about play and I've looked at adult play from an evolutionary perspective. Um, let me begin by saying that for most mammals, play is limited to the juvenile period. Uh, the adults generally don't play under certain circumstances and some species do play in adulthood. Which species play in adulthood? It turns out that those species for whom making peaceful adult connections with a large group of people, not necessarily relatives, play is the means of doing that. <laughs> so, so animals that need to get along in adulthood with other adults in order to hunt together, in order to, in order to cooperate in various other ways, they're more likely to play in adulthood. And so one of the things that play does is social play promotes cooperation. So, um, and I think that when, as we move towards a society that is less understanding of play in adulthood, we are also moving towards a society of less cooperation. So more of an individualistic kind of society. I've written about play in hunter-gatherer cultures where the adults are very playful. They continue to play in adulthood in various ways. They turn all of social life into play. And these are banned hunter-gatherers that absolutely depend upon cooperation for mm. survival. They have to hunt cooperatively. They raise children cooperatively. You couldn't survive as an individual. That You survive because everybody shares everything. And what promotes that sharing is a kind of culture that in which the, the adults as well as the kids are regularly playing with one another and um, play promotes a kind of social bonding with those people that you're playing with. I think that's the most important role of play in adulthood. But the other thing that I can say, I, I often prefer when I'm talking about adults to use the term playful as an adjective rather than play as a noun. I define play in a certain way that, um, that such that um, 
full out play that is really something we most often see in children mm -hmm. and it would be somewhat inappropriate for adults to be spending all their time doing yes. this yep we we adults have certain responsibilities right <laughs> we have to make a living we're responsible for our children we're responsible for the world in some sense yep. children have the luxury of quote just playing where it's not oriented towards these specific kinds yep. of ends that's part of the definition mm -hmm. of full play that it's not trying to accomplish something in the mm. real world, but we adults have to accomplish things in the real world, right? And uh, now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some time just to play, but we're not going to play as much as children do. And that's why we also have less of a drive to play that way. Mother Nature recognized that. And I think we continue to play the way children do, partly because we, unlike most other mammalian species, have to continue learning throughout our lives, have to continue keeping a flexible right. mind, adapting. Yeah. and play continues to play that kind of a role with us in adults. So, so that's another function of play. But I most often talk about a playful attitude because regardless of what you're doing, whether at your job, at, at being a parent, at being a neighbor, you have the choice to do it in a playful way. Yeah. <laughs> to bring a playful spirit to what you're doing. It may not be full play because it's oriented towards particular ends. There are particular right. constraints on how you can do it and still keep your job and still be a decent parent and so on and so forth. But within that, there's still lots of room for creativity. There's lots of room for, for uh, social interaction with other people, ideally. There's lots of room for you to decide your own ways of doing it, try different ways of doing it, and so on and so forth. Two people can have the very same job and one of them can enjoy that job because they're bringing a playful attitude towards it, where the other one is just drudgery <laughs> because they're not bringing a playful attitude towards it. So I think that, um, I think there's, with regard to adults, I think that there's two ways to think about play. One is, yeah, leave yourself time to do things that are just really fun. One of the things I encourage in adults, I, I wrote a blog post. It's one of my least read blog posts. Uh, we uh, will share it in the notes <laughs> and it will become which more is, read. Which is entitled Play Out, Don't Work Out. Mm. <laughs> so adults work out as their mm. way of exercising. Right. And uh, and if, you're, if it's work out, you know, I hate exercise machines. I hate running around a track. I hate all these things. But there are certain things that involve exercise and physical ability that I love to do. I love bicycling. I love cross-country skiing. I, I hate swimming back and forth in the pool, but I love swimming in the lake. I love, I, I love vegetable gardening. All these things are giving me good exercise. I'm 78 years old. I'm in good physical condition. I don't work out, but I do a lot of playing out. And mm -hmm. so I encourage people to not give up playing in physically vigorous ways, but look for ways that are fun, where you don't have to force yourself to do it. You have to force yourself to do not to do it because yeah. you want to do it all the time. You want to do more of it rather than less of it. Yeah. That's, I think, in, in adulthood, the trick to keeping a physically fit body. It's not going to the gym regularly because if you don't like doing it, at some point you're going to stop doing it. Mm. And so, and similarly, the mind is like a muscle too. The brain is like a muscle. You exercise that in play. And I think that for me, I don't feel the need 
to that so much because I'm using those brain cells all the time in my work. Yes. So, but I'm not necessarily using these other muscles in yes. my work, right? So, but for somebody who has a more physically active work life, um, doing things like puzzles, doing things like video games, there's more and more evidence that as we get older, we should play, be playing some of these difficult, cognitively difficult video games. They preserve our brain. And, and if you can yeah. learn, it's often hard for older people to get into them because they're so difficult. But <laughs> if, you can, if you can get into it gradually and begin to really enjoy it, there's evidence that it forestalls uh, the memory loss and the, and the loss of quick thinking and so on that all, all too often occurs as people get older mm, there's going to be such a generation of like granny gamers isn't there in the future <laughs> exactly. it'll be fascinating to see what impact <laughs> that has and the playful yeah. um the playful characteristic that you talk about is also something i think we should say that ev- anyone can harness it's not that some people are born playful some people are born creative right. we all have this characteristic we just need to unleash it and tune into it and be more confident with it and I thought I'd share with you how I define um playfulness so some of the the characteristics of a playful mindset that I talk about are I use openness um curiosity radical acceptance is one that I think is really related to playfulness um and then creativity those are the sort of four that I think if you can be aware of those things and just challenge yourself, can I be more open? Am I being curious? Can I tap into my creativity? And right. am I accepting this situation? Now, what can I do with it? Um, those are the right. sort of four that I point to that I think help you to, to bring about your playfulness. Good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Just keeping your mind open, thinking, you know, noticing things as you're going along, letting, um, letting your you know sometimes i'll i i you know take an example of that i remember at one point i was i I used to take the dog out for a long walk along a railroad track and i remember thinking one time i was walking along i was thinking oh this is just kind of a dreary thing walking along this railroad track and then i began to think so how would I have walked along this railroad track when I was eight years old? <laughs> yeah. All right. I wouldn't be walking next. I'd be walking on the rail. Can I even walk on the rail anymore? And there I was. I was walking on the rail. And then, <laughs> and then can I skip on the rail or can I jump from one rail to another? So I began to challenge myself on this walk. And suddenly I was playing on this yeah. walk along the rail. So I think that I think one can take that attitude and you're still accomplishing what you're out to accomplish. In this case, a simple thing of walking the dog. But um, and, but if you think about that with your work, can I, without slowing down my work, without, can I, can I bring a, can I bring new and interesting challenges to it? Can I open mm. myself to different ways of doing it? Can I open myself to saying hello to this person who I never said hello to before, who's part of the, uh, has always been part of the furniture at my work, but get kind of get kind of give a smile and a friendly mm. nod to this person and maybe a little teasing or something that helps yeah. that helps uh, generate a nice social playful atmosphere. Where all kinds of things that one can do that just really makes 
makes life more fun. Yeah, and that it is really the small things, particularly in adulthood. It is those that I sometimes call the moments of mischief. It's those little right. things that you do just for the sake of it, just for pure fun, right. um, that create those connections, both with yourself and with other people. Um, they make such a difference. They really do. Right. Right. Thank you, Dr. Peter Gray. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been pure play for me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Such yeah. cognitive stimulation. Um, and yeah, after reading so much of your work and, and watching your talks, um, it, it's brilliant to, to finally get to sit down with you and have this conversation. We will um, put all the details of your um books and your blogs we're going to make that your most read blog now <laughs> play out don't work out i love that um but yeah thank you so much for your time um i really appreciate it thank you it's been a pleasure great questions and great thoughts from you too okay awesome. thank you.